Welcome to Asbury Pod with Amy Quinn and Joe Walsh. This week, we talk with Mike Castellano and, making her encore appearance on Asbury Pod, Diana Pettit, both from the New Jersey chapter of the Surfrider Foundation. We find out what the Surfrider Foundation does, which is everything from beach cleanups and sponsoring Asbury Park's Family Day at the Beach, to activism in support of beach access and regulation of pollution from plastics. Surfrider also provides an army of volunteers in support of the upcoming See Here Now Surf Music and Art Festival in Asbury Park. And we also hear Amy Quinn wish very hard, out loud, that someone would introduce her to Ani DeFranco. Welcome, Mike and Diana. The matters addressed in this podcast represent my own personal views and opinions concerning issues affecting the citizens of Asbury Park in my capacity as the deputy mayor of the city of Asbury Park. They do not necessarily represent the official position of the city or the official position of the Asbury Park City Council as a whole. I am developing and implementing this podcast in an effort to keep citizens informed. However, this is not an official City of Asbury Park podcast and does not, and I repeat, does not represent the official position of the city or the governing body. Their interviews always hit the mark, so subscribe to Asbury Park. I mean, pod. Be informed, don't be in the dark. Everybody listen to Asbury Park. I mean, pod. Everything you need to know. Brought to you by Amy and Joe. If you're local, they're the pod for you. But Bennies are welcome and Shoebies too. Route 35 to Convention Hall. As Barry Pod covers it all. As Barry Pod, I love you. I love you. So, welcome, uh, Asbury Pod listeners. We have two very, very special guests, um, Diana <laughs> and Mike. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. And, and we're talking all things Surfrider today. It's September 14th. And if Joe and I get it together, this is going to go up September 15th, yep, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hopefully, well, we'll see. The listeners <laughs> let us know if it's September 15th when you're hearing this. Um, and Diana, you're a repeater because we had you on um, over like episode three or four. Yeah, yeah. Early, early on ones. about like mobility and all of that. But Mike is a newbie. So will you guys do a little introduction? Mike, start with you. You, you are currently the chair of Surfrider, right? Correct. Yep. Mike wow. Castellano, the current chair of the Surfrider Foundation Jersey Shore Chapter and a proud resident of Asbury Park, um, just a couple blocks from you all. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. And how long have you been chair, Mike? Uh, coming up on three years at the end of this year. Oh, okay. Three years. Wow. Yeah, we had like a we had like a, a weird situation with COVID, whereas normally it would be like a two year term. COVID, we didn't really have a chance to do much. And so it was kind of like a year that didn't exist on the board technically. So. So it's a lost You're the, you're the chair of a lost year. That's right. Um, so we felt, so we felt cheated. Um, so we of Mike, so we have him back for another year, another two turn, <laughs> another two years. So we can get the full Mike experience as chair. And now, Diana, you were chair when you were on, right? No, I was never chair. I'm not somebody who's very good in the limelight. So I like to work behind the scenes a bit more. So I've been uh, for a long time. I wasn't even on the board. I was just actively involved. And right now I hold two 
positions. I am the events coordinator and the ocean friendly restaurants coordinator. Oh, wow. And so, go ahead, Jay. No, I was going to say for the benefit of people listening, what does the Surfrider Foundation do? I mean, those of us who live around here, we see the name attached to a lot of events, but what is the, um, hmm, was that mine? Uh, are you on Cookman, Diana? Am I looking at, are you on, where are you, Diana? <laughs> You're never going to guess. I'm far from the ocean. <laughs> I'm in Ithaca. I'm in the commons ah. in Ithaca, New York. So it is a little loud. I'm up here on an impromptu road trip. And I'm not in a quiet location, so I apologize. <laughs> no, I thought that was coming from my neighbor. I didn't know what that. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were on Cookman. I'm like, look at look at Diana. She's she's broadcasting live on Cookman. And Mike, where are you? You're from some. You're you look like you're uh, yeah. somewhere. I'm on my back porch on Cookman. Okay. Well, so, somebody's on Cookman. I got that much right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, yeah. So for, you know, what does the Surfrider Foundation do? Like those of us who are local and live down the shore, we're, we're familiar with the name, the beach cleanups and things, but for those listening, they may have never encountered what Surfrider is. What is, what does the Surfrider Foundation do? Yeah. So uh, the, the Surfrider Foundation is a national nonprofit uh, that's really dedicated to the protect, protection and enjoyment of, you know, the world's oceans, waves, and beaches. And as I said, it is a national nonprofit and it's comprised of, of, you know, so many chapters across the United States, um, along coastal regions, the Jersey Shore chapter uh, being one. Um, but it started in, in California and made its way over here. And, and since has been like a, a pretty, you know, prevalent uh, a force for environmental issues on the East Coast, and especially in New Jersey. And then each chapter can, it, it has a framework from the national chapter in California about certain campaigns, um, and projects, uh, but each chapter can decide what is appropriate for that area. So for instance, you know, beach access is a big issue for us. Offshore drilling is a big issue for us, um, but not all chapters will be engaged in the same um, mission all the time, even though there is an overarching framework from the national chapter. And when you talk about Diana or Mike, when you talk about beach access, offshore drilling, like, you know, just take it and take our listeners. What about what about those topic, topics make you passionate? Diana, do you want me to start? Sure. Um, so I'm actually not from New Jersey. I've only lived in New Jersey about six years now. And so prior to coming here. I, uh, I really didn't know much about beach access or, you know, mid-Atlantic drilling or plastic pollution. Um, I just knew that I really enjoyed coming to the beach and I really enjoyed being in the water. Um, and so when I moved here, you know, that love really just, it grew, you know, exponentially having, you know, lives only three blocks away. And so being able to access the beach for me has been, you know, extremely easy. I haven't really faced much difficulty in the past, but as I got more involved, you know, with the community and with New Jersey as a whole, I, I saw just how difficult it was for surfers, you know, to want to surf and for fishermen to want to fish uh, and for, you know, folks who necessarily can't access the beach, you know, how difficult it can be for them. Um, and it was just, again, because I had it so easy and I saw nothing of it, but again, as, as it grew and as I, I met people and, and realized just how difficult of a fight it was to get on the ocean or on the beach, you know, and access the ocean, I, I kind of fell in love with it and, fell in love with wanting to make sure that it was accessible to everybody uh, just because I got to enjoy it so much. And so again, just, you know, having not been from an area that's 
really coastal related or next to the ocean. I knew that I loved the ocean and that was really enough for me to, to really fall in love with the work that Surfrider does. I think, uh, oh. sorry, sorry, Amy. No, 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 go ahead, Joe. I think like the first time I went to California, you know, being from New Jersey, I've always paid beach fees. And I think uh, the one and only time I was in Los Angeles, I went to the beach. I went to Hermosa Beach and I was wandering around looking for where I was supposed to pay for a badge and had no idea that that wasn't required, that it was a New Jersey thing. I didn't realize how you know difficult we make it to get to, to access the ocean here, you know, between private beaches, encroachment of private property into the waterline, demanding people not be there. Uh, and various very high fees. Um, it's quite a, an interesting system. I mean, whereas California was like, yeah, it's it's open to everybody. It was really kind of an interesting experience. And I, I guess we're not used to it from Jersey. Didn't realize that it was actually a thing. Just got it was. I always thought that was the way it was. I feel like we're always suing Deal for beach access. Does yeah, that ring true to you? That's always a thing. Yeah. And it's always been a thing. It's been like an ongoing thing for, for God knows how many years, you know, and it's funny. One of the talking points that I always have on our podcast is how long ago Asbury was not open to surfers. And it was only 20 years ago that surfing was not legal here in Asbury park, which is crazy to think of. I didn't, I would never assume that like just coming here and seeing people surf on North beach, but, um, Oh, that's an interesting tidbit to me. Also 20 years ago, if anybody did come here to surf, nobody else was on the beach because I was here 20 years ago and I was one of the nine people sitting on the beach at the time. And that's actually the genesis of Family Day, Amy, was in totally. celebration and in thanks of surfing being allowed in Asbury Park that when um, folks like Doc Rosenblatt and who else was it, Mike, um, um, who yeah, were Greg, working hard Greg, with the city. Yeah, Greg, Greg Pollack, Pollack and all those boys, mm-hmm. yep we're working hard for surfers to have access to the beach and to surf when the city finally granted it, they decided that they would um, hold a family day at the beach to bring surfing to the community and the beach to the community. We had on um, the Esbury park surf club. They're going to air probably after you guys and the Esbury park surf club and kids and Joe, you correct anything I say that's wrong, but I can tell you from my observations and I think they concluded the same, but just having been on the council for God, six or seven and maybe my brain is like mush from the pandemic. I don't know anywhere from six to 10 years. I've been on there. <laughs> the, the three issues that, that I can tell you unequivocally is transportation, economics and swimming. So the city did the, the, the weekly family beach badges. So if you're a family, you know, if you're involved in the rec program and, and I felt like we were able to tackle that, but we've never been successfully successful on transportation. That's not something that we've been able to really kind of accomplish. And the, and the third is swimming, but I will tell you, I spoke to Leisha Floyd, who's our um, recreation director at, in Asbury park and her and I went back and forth in the recreation committee about implementing swim, you know, kind of a, a a swimming, a pilot swimming lessons over at the boys and girls club in the school district to start, you know, getting kids more comfortable in the water. But, but, but I'd love to hear, you know, both of your feedback, but my observations are economics, transportation, and then a real uh, uh, kids in Esbury park are not the most comfortable in water. 
And then there's, you know, mixed into that too, is feeling like you belong there, that it's your beach. And that's one of the things we fight for beach access is that the beach is, or at least the mean high tide line is held in the public trust. And we're all entitled to access to the mean high tide line, but not all of us um, feel like it is our right or our, um, to have it. So it's also just um, uh, mobilizing and empowering folks to feel like it's theirs as well. What does that mean? I've heard about the high tide line, like for you, like I, we even hear that with see here now, people are like, I can go to the, the high tide line. Like, just take me through, like, what exactly does that mean? And maybe any historical knowledge you have on it. It's, it's always a bit of a puzzle for me. Well, I so think Mike could talk a little bit more about it, but I mean, it goes back to yeah. Roman law with Justinian and English, English law that things like the beach, um, access to the lakes things like that's common land, all of us are uh, allowed to access it. Um, there can be, actually, Mike, do you want to take it from there? Yeah. And so, I mean, as Diana just mentioned, right, this is, is locked in the public trust doctrine, which was just signed into law about two years ago. And it's not something that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, but and when he says signed into law, I mean, in New Jersey, I mean, the concept of the public trust doctrine goes back almost 2000 years or maybe right. 1500 years, 1600 years. But in New Jersey, the public trust doctrine has been codified just a couple of years ago. And it's um, enforced by the, um, the DP, the DP, DEP, right? Yeah, correct. Right. Because yeah, prior to right, prior to this being codified, uh, the high tide line was really like up for grabs. Um, and basically, when we say the high tide line, it's, you know, the line where the water really meets the sand. And in New Jersey, municipalities are the ones who run that sand from the high tide line up to the, you know, to the boardwalk. And so essentially no state can or municipality can really own that high tide line. And so everybody has the right to access it, um, whether it's through through the boardwalk access, through lateral access, it doesn't really matter. But um, but yeah, again, that that public trust doctrine really just solidified the fact that everybody does has the right to access that high tide line, uh, whether or not a municipality wants to grant them that or not. And you see that tension come into play, for instance, in Malibu, if we're talking about California, about you know, celebrities and rich folks have these houses on the beach and they um, wave their arms and um, and horns that all these folks, normal folk walk by their homes, but normal folks are allowed to access the mean high tide line and walk in front of their homes. Uh, the other closer to home, we can use the example of maybe the Seabright Beach Clubs that, um, you know, obviously the beach clubs maintain the beaches up to the high tide line and they would like to prohibit people from walking the high tide line, but they can't. So they can give that illusion of exclusion that people don't feel comfortable walking by these beach clubs or they might be thrown shade for walking by the beach clubs, but everybody should be able to maintain access to those mean, mean, high, mean high tide line and, you know, walk north or south along the beach and see bright. So we also protect yeah. that the not just access points that means making sure there's parking available for people to access the beach, that people haven't put up gates to prevent access to the beach, but that also people are doing these more subtle things of giving this illusion to, of exclusion that somehow it's not meant for you to access the beach um, in certain places. And is that why Andrew's always going out a sewing deal? There is this well, like... Yeah, I was just going to say the thing with deal is really like Diana just said, sometimes it's not it's not directly 
somebody saying you can't come onto the beach. But for instance, the parking, if Dio wants to make resident only parking on certain streets that lead to access points, well, then you're essentially saying the only people that can access the beach are really residents because how else are you going to park and get there? And so parking is always tied into beach access, um, even though you wouldn't really think it is. Uh, but that's always, 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 always the issue and deal. It always has something to do with parking. They just they always want to restrict really anybody being in their street, in their town. So. <laughs> oh, deal. Yeah. Well, even in other places too, and you know me from being on the podcast on Asbury Pod earlier, is that I'm you know, no fan of cars and wish we all rode our bicycles. But even I, who are sort of anti-car and anti-people thinking that they are entitled to have parking, that it's just a free right, that we should all be able to park wherever we want. Um, I do believe that parking is really key to promote and protect beach access. Because if there's no parking or any place to put your car, there's no way in effect for people to get onto the beach. And what I also like to point out is, you know, almost all these beaches in our area had been, I'll use the word beneficiaries of beach nourishment. Um, I'm not sure, really sure if we are beneficiaries of it, but we receive beach replenishment. And, you know, is that 60% of um, the beach replenishment is paid by federal tax dollars? And so that means somebody in Ohio has paid for our beaches, which means that somebody from Ohio, if they want to drive to the Jersey Shore and access the beach that they paid for, there's got to be some parking for them to access the beach that they helped nourish. Dan, yeah, glad you brought that. I'm sorry, Mike, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I actually just wanted to say really quick, that ties into what, Joe, what you were talking about earlier with beach tags. It was a few years ago that Senator Sweeney introduced a bill that would essentially remove beach tags for any townships that have received beach nourishment. Um, and I know that it, it wasn't talked about and it wasn't like broadcasted. It actually like died pretty quickly. Um, but interesting enough that it, yeah, I mean that you guys both brought that up and, and such a bill did exist at one time, but I can't imagine anything like that would ever really fly in New Jersey. Not with local rule the way it is. Right. Exactly. Um, the, the, uh, Dan, I'm glad you brought up the beach replenishment. So I, when I was preparing to talk to you guys today, I was looking on the Surfrider website and came across the white paper about beach replenishment and how it is a big issue that Surfrider is engaged in. And you have this great research in terms of like you know, what parts of it are beneficial, and all, but also what's detrimental to it. And I just thought that was a pretty interesting um, piece of information that most people don't think about. And, you know, obviously we think, oh, the hurricane came, took away the beach, let's bring some more in. And surf riders like, well, maybe not, maybe we shouldn't do it or at least not do it in that way. Right. Because of the compounding um, uh, unintended consequences of doing that. I mean, I was wondering, could you guys talk a little bit about that? Like what, what do we, you know, since we all receive beach replenishment from Seabright to Cape May, what is essentially might be the problem with that? Or we, what do we perceive would be the problem with that? Well, there's several problems and maybe Mike can talk more about the technical sides of it. And that beach replenishment isn't really a long-term solution to keeping our coastline resilient. That would be more like sand dunes or not developing on our beach or having soft structures or marshland to protect our um, coastline. Uh, from a financial and social point of view, for me, beach replenishment is um, problematic and Surfrider also takes this stance too, is that Beach replenishment, the money that it requires, is sort of tantamount to taking 25 to $50 million and just throwing it into the ocean. 
that, you know, right now New Jersey is working to double its bestial punishment fund from 25 million to $50 million. And what, you know, think about all the social services, $50 million could uh, fund in the state of New Jersey, but instead it's going to be replenishment, which all it takes is one storm to come and take all that sand away. And then the cycle begins again. And we're also not left with any long-term solution to deal with um, our coastal resiliency issue. So that's, for me, in many ways, the big thing is the social cost of beach replenishment. It's not long-term and it diverts money from other potential um, recipients of $50 million. Right. The, the, the stat that really caught my attention was the increase in beach-related injuries caused by replenishment. I think it was a Delaware, was it maybe, maybe I have it wrong, but I thought, I thought the, the case study was like Delaware recorded like a 20% increase in uh, you know, spinal injuries from people you know, jumping into water that is either shallower than they thought or what have you. And um, so there's an external cost that p- gets picked up by your medical insurance and your hospital bills from just putting that in there too. That's millions of dollars of hospital visits or you know, spinal injuries. And, and I had no idea that that was a correlation. Beach replenishment increases beach injuries. And uh, uh, so it's a pretty interesting um, source of information there. I think and a lot does, of people are, mm-hmm. well, I'm sorry, Diane, go ahead. No, and I was saying that um, it ties back into beach access is that usually when a municipality receives federal money for beach access, it's on the understanding that they will increase. Sorry, when they receive money for beach replenishment, it's usually with the understanding, too, that they'll increase beach access. But it tends to be the reverse, as we've seen in Deal, that there's all this movement to try to restrict beach access. Um, And it's also this weird issue of like reverse social funding in the sense that you think about all the really fancy pants homes that are on the beach. And they're often not putting a lot of tax dollars like they should into the system, but they're very happy for um, the government to come in and pay for beachful punishment, which is just benefiting their beach and then looking to restrict access and to the beach as well. But Mike, carry on. I interrupted you. No, no. I just wanted to say that I think that a lot of folks, myself included, when I first learned about what beach punishment was, is watching videos on how they actually acquire sand to pump onto the beach, I think was a game changer for me. Um, just the amount of sand that they suck in and suck out. And then knowing that that sand can be gone in a day, it's just absolute insanity. And I think, again, if, if folks just grasp the understanding, it's one thing to hear it and be like, Oh, it sounds, you know, a little abnormal, but it makes the beach look nice, but then understanding fully what it does and, the amount of marine life that you're hurting, the the seawalls you're creating underwater. uh, It's just, yeah, really insane. And, and Mike, just for our listeners, describe what you're talking about, how they, um, how they replenish. Yeah. And so they'll, they bring big barges out into the, you know, a couple miles off the ocean and they'll suck sand up like a vacuum. um, And then literally force that down pipes onto the beach where it'll blow out and they'll have, you know, bulldozers and bobcats and everything moving the sand around as it gets vacuumed out of the ocean and onto the beach. And so when you think about this big giant vacuum that's sucking all this sand up from the ocean floor, think of all the marine life that's getting sucked up with it. Um, all the habitats ruined, uh, all the, all the marine life just killed in the process. And that's again, only one of, one of the downfalls, one of the pits of beach renourishment is just the process itself. Uh, let alone, you know, the, the magnitude of other things involved. 
And then sometimes the sand too is not even local sand. It might be brought in from beaches to the south, which means the sand will be of different particle size and what would be in New Jersey. And um, the ecosystem adapts to certain particulate um, size of the sand grain and here you're bringing in foreign sand and so it's a big shock and adjustment and often as mike as mike said can lead to the death of a lot of marine life as well sort of i've heard a description of that when you're dumping all the sand it's be like if you dumped all this ash into the forest and just like covered up all these ecosystems with um yeah, with uh, yeah, with here with reach replenishment of sand but then you know in the forest with um cover of ash that would harm every harm a lot of wildlife. I remember I, I saw one of those barges. It was, I think it was parked off deal a couple within the last couple of years. Uh, Lots yeah. of shout outs to deal. <laughs> yeah. And it's, to be fair to deal, it's not just deal, right? I'm assuming we have the same access issues. Like I'm going to guess like uh, um, Manaloking is, 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 you know, with the houses right on the water or the ones that survive Sandy, you know, um, there's some, re, there's some, very wealthy places and, and, and anything on the North shore of uh, the, the Long Island sound has a lot of private beaches where that I've transgressed, um, you know, uh, so it's not just deal New Jersey. There's a, there, there are other places that this is an issue that just happens to be our neighbor. Right. So, <laughs> uh, well, our last was, podcast, I went on and on about how much I hated the town of Marlboro. Yeah. So. I, I actually <laughs> just looked at a list of all the municipalities in New Jersey that have received nourishment and it's, pretty it's extensive probably all of them yeah I, I would guess it's not over 90 percent of them yeah i mean obviously some have received much more than others um places like seabright long branch like they signed that deal uh that obviously brought them a ton more sand than other municipalities have in the past but yeah over the last like 15 20 years it's uh it's pretty much been every municipality so and i don't know if i'm right about this but i swear i read an article that the world is running out of sand in terms oh, of that, I don't fine know per- about that. That, like, you know, for glass manufacture and things, it's used for other things, and you know, at least industrial sand, maybe not beach sand. But um, so, uh, you well, you know, we'll edit that out because that could have been something I read or something. No, I imagined. no, I think no, that's I, actually I, true. I, I think, can yeah. confirm that too. I read that yeah. too. I just don't know where I saw it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, which, which freaks me out. I was like, what do you mean going to run out of sand? No more glass? Like, what is like? You know, I didn't. That's something I didn't think we'd run out of, right? But. Uh, you know, because it's used for concrete and for other things. And so it's not something you can just, and we're just throwing it on like, you know, Dan, like I said, just throwing it on the beach to be washed away again at the next uh, nor'easter. Right. And not even right. you don't have to wait for hurricane, you get nor'easters or nor'easter type storms a lot here. And they always involve uh, a result in some erosion. And we're just, you know, you know, throwing that away. Um, I don't want to discount the, how complicated the issue is. Cause um, I'm also a member of the green team in Asbury Park. And we're starting to look more closely at issues of coastal resiliency and um, what we can do to make Asbury Park more resilient. But then if you stretch out the term resilient, you know, what does resilient mean? You might have community resilience, you want economic resilience. And in terms of economic resilience, you know, um, Mike can probably back me up or give me the, the number, but how many billions of dollars is generated in tourism in New Jersey, Mike? Is it like $60 billion, $46 billion in tourism? Yeah, $47 and, billion. Dollars. And a lot of that is going to come from the Jersey Shore, of course. And 
and that, and New Jersey needs that money, right? And municipalities need that money that then the government will get back in social services and whatnot. So if there are no beaches in, in New Jersey or no good beaches, then you're not going to be getting that $47 billion in tourism money, which would be problematic. But then equally problem, problematic is having these beaches that aren't going to be resilient. Well, eventually we're going to have no beaches if we don't come up with a good sound system to protect our beaches. In addition, there, there's the idea of local community resilience, right? That um, if you're just protecting the beaches for tourism, what does it mean for, you know, like think about the west side of Asbury Park. What is their benefit for um, a beach that is resilient that they're not accessing or thinking too about $50 million are going into these beaches and then they're not getting social services for it. So it's always tricky business. Like you need the beaches for tourism money, but then in the long term, it's not really going to help out and who's benefiting from it anyway. So I don't mean to say it's all simple issues, but for the most part, um, we're against, uh, we're against beach replenishment. Yeah. And to your point, Diana, the, the, the solutions are not easy either. That's the big thing. We're always faced with the problem of everyone's like, well, what's your solution that if you if you had this big problem, what are the solutions? And then we're all looking at each other like, uh, well, this this could work and this could work. But there's no there's no real definitive answer, uh, whereas like plastic pollution, there's a definitive answer as to how to really stop it. And that's at production. That's at manufacturing. But with with coastal resiliency, there really is no set textbook solution. Um, so yeah, just a, another, another problem that we're faced with along the line. But some of the mitigation um, resiliency projects you guys engage in, like the Bradley Beach uh, Maritime Forest, which you know, I see all the time, you know, that's a really great uh, you know, all, so you know, we can't, maybe we can't, we don't have a solid answer to be, um, beach replenishment, but like this regreening of spaces near or behind the boardwalks for as you know to create like these barriers these renewable barriers really great and beautification and they make the place nicer looking as well um so i just want to yeah to diana's point just you guys are not all just like don't do this you have all these other things going on at the same time i think um so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask two questions one on my in my experience at least in city government it's never an easy answer and even like with plastics mike with you know, I had to do all this research and I now don't remember half of it. But, you know, when we banned plastic bags in Asbury, but then there was this uptip. And I think it was John Weber. He's like, well, you can ban plastic bags, Amy. But then the, you know, the the paper bags, I don't know, are worse for the environment to make in the factories. Or it was like some, and I was like, well, then, dude, what do you want me to do? Right. Well, you tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. Um, so I, I think it's it's oftentimes, at least in my experience, a complicated problem with a complicated and usually multi-tiered sort of solution. But but you know, in anything, it, in in anything, from you know anything, swimming, economics, um, plastic bags versus paper bags to beach replenishment to. Yeah, it's never just beach, as easy right? as like we're gonna we're gonna do this. Yeah, it's never just like yeah, this. We're gonna do and. It's going to happen right now and it's going to happen this way and there's not going to be steps to take, but no. And, and it's funny that. You and the, and the consequences are going to be great for everyone, right? People on the beach, people in Southwest, people on main street, the consequences to this are going to be absolutely they're going to knock everybody's socks off all over town. That never happens. Never. 
Never. So, but listen, I, I just have to, I'm going to, I'm going to push this a little away from beach replenishment. So, so the national, you know, surf rider has, I guess, a certain set of issues. And then the Jersey shore kind of takes on, on their kind of takes on their own issues. And I, and I feel like, you know, oftentimes social, ju- you know, social justice issues are, are ensuring that, you know, access for, you know, people who otherwise don't feel like they have access to the beach. So like, what would you, so describe to me, like some of the issues that the Jersey Shore chapters um, passion, passionate about and, and clearly beach replenishment's one of them, <laughs> but um, you know, and I, I say that to also segue into a little bit of family day, but, but ha- happy to talk through other issues that, that the Jersey Jersey Shore chapter passionate about. Diana, do you want to grab this one? No. No? No. I didn't know. <laughs> Should we just go back to beach replenishment? We can just come back to- <laughs> no, I think no. I feel like I like my brain's stuck there. But uh, I would say that <laughs> offshore drilling, right? We participate in hands across the sand and um, yeah, protecting our land also from pipelines as well with uh, natural gas. Uh, we're also very passionate. Well, yeah, very passionate about beach access. We're also very passionate about trying to stop single-use plastics. And um, like in New Jersey, there's going. There's actually, Mike. Maybe you can talk about the where the law stands now with um, single-use plastic and the. Uh, making sure that in New Jersey, at least a certain percentage of any plastic material will have to have a certain percentage of uh, recycled plastic in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the New Jersey plastics bill, we just passed that uh, mid, mid-pandemic. That was in November of, of 2020, which was crazy because we had worked on it for so long. And, and so for those who don't know, the legislation bans a single-use, it bans the distribution of single-use plastic bags and phases out the distribution of paper bags in, in two years, I believe. It was either two years or five years. Uh, and then alongside that, it also bans the distribution. Yeah, I think it is two years. It, it also bans the distribution of takeout styrofoam containers and straws are on request, I believe. And, uh, so there was and a, that's what I was talking about, the new law, too, that we're trying to get through. Yeah, the Recycled Contents Bill, which is, again, a statewide bill that would require any plastic manufactured in New Jersey to, to contain a certain percentage of recycled material. And so if you, if you produce soda bottles in New Jersey, uh, said bottles would need to contain, we'll say 35% recycled plastic. Um, and that bill is, is currently moving and moving and grooving, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of talk about the language of, of how big the percentage is because, some percentages are almost impossible to hit like 35% is a lot, but, but yeah, we, uh, we've been very, very strong on our stance and our fight against plastic pollution. Um, Asbury park was, was one of the folks that signed up for a plastic bag ban, which was really cool to see. And you guys were super receptive, which as, as strange as this sounds, a lot of municipalities are not so much not receptive. It's just, uh, it's a lot harder of a sell to some folks. They just, yeah. And when then also we don't forget what this, else out there. Well, when we were doing this, all these, um, and you'll appreciate this, all of these food store people came to our council meeting and we're like, but you don't have a food store in Asbury Park, right? Like you're shop right in Acme that you're screaming you're going to sue us. 
it's not an Asbury Park, so why are you taking up these three minutes yelling about this band when you don't have a food? You know, we do have a food store on Third Ave at Asbury Park. They, you know, they were fine. You know, we gave them, you know, probably a few thousand cloth bags. But I have to mention one article that was in the New York Times that I'm sure you guys read about cloth bags that apparently I have to use my cloth bag 45, 30,000 times in my life to get my... Am I the only one who read this New York Times article about cloth bags? Well, I've read other articles about it. Yeah. I mean, again, like as we've been talking, there's no simple solutions to anything, right? But my sort of argument about cloth over plastic and without a doubt, right, cotton is highly water intensive. um, And if you're bleaching the cotton, that's also toxic as well. Um, But it does encourage a mentality of reuse. And I think that that's important. I mean, no matter what, whatever you're carrying stuff around in is going to be somehow probably detrimental to the environment. So try to minimize it. And then also, I think, foster, as I mentioned, this idea of reusing instead of just this throwaway society. And I think once you start thinking about how often we throw away stuff, because I think there's a statistic saying that single use plastics are often used at most 12 minutes. You know, think about all the straws, all the cups, all the forks, all the plates. Um, It just gives you a little chance to pause and like, do I really need to keep using this stuff only once? But right. Bags are complicated. You know, non-plastic bags are super complicated, too. There's no easy solution to anything. And Diana just nailed it. When people always ask us, well, they've asked me, I don't know if they've asked you, Diana, but why why plastic straw bands are even a thing? They're like, do you really think this is everyone's answer? Do you really think that banning plastic straws is going to save the world? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Banning single-use plastic bags aren't going to completely change the world. But what it does is it instills this like habitual change where you're just like, okay, here's one thing that I can live without. I don't need to use this every day or every time that I go out to eat. And so when you pass these these little laws here and there and they keep popping up, they all add up to something way, way larger than what they started out with. I think there's a perception upon, among people like, you know, they perceive any environment regulation as being the brainchild of like tree hugging do-gooders that doesn't have without cause. Right. But, you know, we're reacting, these law, these policies are reactions to real, you know, a real pollution crisis that maybe people don't understand. Like almost all of your plastic that you use, your single use plastic ends up in the ocean at some point. You think it's blown in from a landfill, from a garbage, not, not a hundred percent of it, but the, but the volume is enormous. Um, which then affects we have the, the data on it. And yeah. that's the thing about surf rider too, is when we do beach cleanups, one of the things is not only just to get plastic off the beach, which is, you know, if we want off the beach, but in addition, <laughs> uh, one of the major things is collecting data. So we can say when we're trying to pass these laws and say, we found X number of plastic straws on the beach. This is why plastic straws are a problem and why we think that they should be banned. And that in turn increases the cost of your fish because you know reduces fish it stresses fish population so it increases your food cost. It's not a costless pollutant, meaning you know it, when it ends up in the ocean, it doesn't just disappear. It has an economic effect that downstream from you that you're not aware of. And so this is, and that's the the, the that's the, I guess the missed connection when people are criticizing you know uh, Mike about the straws is well it's not just the straws. There's, there's a whole bigger circle of things going on. We're trying to interrupt like this one cause you know, so the downstream effects are mitigated, but yeah, there's still problems. Exactly. Because you can't, you can't just come out and say, we're going to ban everything at once because then, you know, shit hits the fan. And 
if you you started like that, it would never go over well. And so you have to start small and, and again, gradually build up this habitual change. I talk about this with housing. I mean, it's a different, you know, or, or gentrification. Like we did a, we, we essentially banned short-term rentals. We, you know, pass this rent control that we're going to, we're going to start making some amendments to. And then we did um, this really progressive affordable housing policy. Like if you're not attacking an issue from like five different angles, to me, it's like, no, not one of these is going to to slow down the gentrification or promote, uh, you know, massive amounts of affordable housing in Asbury. But let's hope all five of them combined are going to do a little, certainly more harm than good. But listen, yeah, I got to exactly. get to events because we probably only have about 10 more minutes. So take us through the see here now. This is your third year working with them volunteers. And then I, I would, we absolutely also have to talk about um, Family Day at the Beach, which is one of my fav- favorite, probably. And John Moore, I will tell you, you get the mayor of Asbury Park the <laughs> one time he goes to the beach. Now he walks the boardwalk to take notes and complain about whatever the beach staff is doing wrong. But he sits at the beach <laughs> one day a year and that is Family Day at the Beach. So let's do See Here Now first and then Family Day at the Beach. This is your third year working with See Here Now with volunteers. Just take us through all of that. Yeah, yeah. So so Surfrider is a national sponsor of See Here Now. And one of the uh, festival founders um, is also a longtime chapter member and, you know, one of the folks that helped start the chapter. And so it uh, it only made sense for them to really, you know, do this collaboration. And so... The and we should we give involved. him a shout out. Is that Tim? Yeah, Tim Donnelly. Yep, yeah. we should give a shout out to Tim Donnelly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Tim actually worked uh, at Surfrider National and helped start the chapter. And so he's got all these connections uh, on the West Coast. And so, you know, bringing a festival to Asbury Park was a no brainer. But, you know, the festival is incredible. Two days on the beach, um, some really great artists. And then, you know, on top of all this, this great action, there's this volunteer program that the Surfrider Foundation uh, was fortunate enough to run. And so we, you know, gather folks from all throughout our membership base. And, you know, some folks who are not are, are necessarily not members, but, you know, just longtime followers of the chapter or who have come to events. And so we, we bring them to the festival. We offer them uh, a one, well, no, it's a four to five hour shift, like a four to five hour volunteer shift, working shift, if you will. Um, which in exchange they get a, uh, a pass to the festival for that day. And so like, if you volunteer on Saturday, you get a pass for Saturday, you volunteer for Sunday, you get a pass for Sunday, however that goes. But what the program entails is, is quite a bit, you know, this, the festival is, is very, uh, very sustainable. They uh, work on, you know, making the least amount of single use plastic products as possible. And so we had this program called rock and recycle, uh, which we, ask festival goers to take a bag around with them, pick up recyclables. They bring a full bag back in exchange for bringing the bag back. They get a really cool t-shirt that, you know, you normally couldn't buy. Um, In the past, they've gotten a chance to enter their name into a drawing to win passes for the next festival. And that's only one leg of the volunteer program. You know, we, our volunteers walk around the festival as greeters. Uh, They mingle with festival goers about the surf rider foundation. They help with bike parking, um, to try to lessen, you know, CO2 emissions for the festival. Uh, there's, you know, this water, water stations, ah, water refill stations. Right. Yeah. So there are water refill stations throughout the festival. Um, so folks can bring in reusable bottles, uh, and 
used uh, refill stations as they wish throughout the festival. Again, eliminating that use for single-use plastic bottles. Um, but yeah, just the volunteer program is incredible. We have over 200 volunteers that show up. Everybody has a blast. Uh, and everybody I've talked to has always said that at the end of the festival, it's the cleanest, one of the cleanest festivals they've ever seen. Um, I can tell you unequivocally, Mike, it is one of the absolute, it's probably one of the biggest and cleanest festivals. And I'm even, and I'm going to eat that. I I better not be eating my words this year. It's the cleanest. It's also the least amount of trouble, meaning (laughs) there isn't a major drunk factor at this festival thus far, knock wood. Um, we don't have major, major drunk factors at this festival and, and we do have, have, have them at some other ones. Yeah. I'm talking about drinking. Go ahead, Diana. I was saying drinking this year, not only are volunteers going to be picking up recyclables, they're going to be also picking up returnables because this year, um, C3 Presents, the folks who put on See Here Now, have brought on a company called Turn, and they are bringing, I don't know, like 100,000 reusable cups, and um, the cups will get returned, and then the cups will be washed and then brought to another festival. So there's no single-use cups at the festival. So what will be recycled are, I think, cans and maybe just bottles that people might have brought in to, so they can use at the refill station, water stations. And I, I want to touch on two things related to that. Don't let me forget the bike thing because I, I went, Pam Lamberton was working. I, you know, I rode my bike to see here now a couple of years ago and there was thousands of bikes that it was, that was its own really amazing thing to see. But to your point, Diana, with the reusable cup, so people will like buy a beer, they will get a reusable cup and they'll put it in like a different garbage can or just, yes. just so people understand how to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. So first of all, I would say that there's no cost connected to it. Sometimes with festivals like this, you give a dollar deposit and then if you bring back the cup at the end, you get your dollar deposit back. It's not working that way. There'll be special receptacles that people can put their cups into. Or, uh, I think they'll be around the bar area. There's also going to be these, a few, I think five, of these super cool receptacles for the cups that um, are electronic. And each one of these cups has a barcode at the, or um, at the bottom of the cup and you place it in on top, uh, place it over the aperture of this recyclable of this can and the can will scan the code and will open up and let the cup drop in. It won't let anything else go into this receptacle and then also can keep count of how many cups come in. It's, um, it's new. So that's why there's only going to be five of them. Otherwise there's just going to be these bins that people can put the cups into, but also our volunteers will be going around and collecting any wayward returnable cups, putting them into a bag with also the recyclables. And then back at the surf rider headquarters, we'll be sorting out the recyclables from the returnables and make sure they all go to their proper place. We're going to get messy. Like a massive, this sounds like such a massive endeavor. Yeah. It's important though. I mean, it's all worth it. You know, Mike and I are pretty much just volunteers and it's it just, you know, we're so passionate about keeping our city, our beach, our ocean, um, you know, clean. You know, it's what motivates us. And it is a big operation, but we're also not the only one. We're going to have about 200 volunteers who are also going to help us in this endeavor. Yeah. And while, while it's a great, a really great opportunity for folks that don't have necessarily have passes or want to buy passes for the festival, that's obviously one of the, the biggest perks. 
all of the volunteers that join us are all stoked on that same exact thing. They're all so passionate and they all have so much fun. You know, it's not like you, if you went up to one of the volunteers and started to chat with them about why they're there and what they're, what the most excited about, I can guarantee it's probably seeing Pearl Jam on the beach is tied with their love for what they're doing. So it's just, it really, really is cool. And at the end of every, the last two years, where Diane and I are always like, man, that was just incredible. And it's just so awesome to see so many people together for one reason. So yeah, just, uh, I can't wait. I'm so excited. It's here. And now do you guys run this bike thing that I see, or is that the green team who runs the bike thing? I think the first year second life bikes and complete streets did it. And then last year and this year, we are going to be supplying the volunteers to assist in bike parking. It's not bike valet. It's just bike parking. Um, so we will have the area set up for it and we'll have volunteers assisting. No, no, it was great that when I saw it in, in 20, well, we didn't have it last year. So 2019, it, I walked into the, the bike parking lot for lack of a better word. And um, it was massive. It was, it was a hoot. It was, it was great. You know, I just want to say you guys also hit on the perfect time. You've had been like, God must love this festival. It had been the last two years, like the like perfect weather. And it looks like Joe, you're going to have it again. Don't curse us. I know. Don't I just realized us. I should have shut up. Well, no one listens to this podcast. So I assume the powers that be also don't. <laughs> you know, the, there's also, you know, there's also the a surf champions listening. <laughs> What's that? There's also a surf component to the festival, which is really cool. And the waves next week are supposed to be pretty, pretty great. So that's, that's un- not pretty uncommon too. Can't beat that. Last festival, I think the waves are really small, but the guys made the best of it. Oh, wow. Okay. And then we have about three or four more more minutes. Can you guys just talk a little bit about Esbury Park Family Day at the beach? Oh, this is all Diana. What else, what else can I say about it, Amy? Well, yeah, well, I don't know if our listeners have been to it. We have a couple of listeners. Interestingly enough, we have a couple of listeners that are beyond New Jersey. Make what you will of that. Um, look out there. Well, we've I already know. mentioned in the program the genesis of it, and it was in celebration and in um, appreciation of surfing becoming legal in Asbury Park in 2002, I think. And then Family Day first started in 2003. I hope I have my dates wrong. I hope my dates wrong. I hope I have my dates right. And Family Day is just a chance to open up our beach to our greater community particularly geared towards kids and the adults in their lives. And it's an afternoon at the beach. It goes from 12 to 5 PM. And during that time period, kids and kids specifically, they get um, some education about beach safety from the Asbury park lifeguards. They go on a beach scavenger hunt to find and explore the beach ecology, finding sand crabs and actual crabs and um, what else? They, oh, they found surf clams. Actually, for me, that's the cutest part, just watching kids exploring the beach and finding wildlife and connecting to it. Then we also have free surf lessons given by Summertime Surf. This year was in the, af- the early afternoon. In the later afternoon, we had Asbury Park Surf Club come help out with the lessons, as well as a whole host of other volunteers. We have live music the past three years it's been string beam he's brought his band and there's others beach volleyball it's just also getting kids active and involved um on the beach and it's i don't know it's just so fun 
It's it's like one of my favorite days. And for our listeners, we actually have Asbury Park Surf Club, which will air after um, after the Surf Rider um, podcast will will air. So you'll you'll hear all about the um, the endeavors. And I have to tell you, and I said this during that one again, but I'll say it again. Watching little kids on surf, so having a little boy and suffering through soccer or t-ball or, you know, <laughs> sports that are, you know, like watching paint dry, um, watching little kids on surfboards is like the cutest, right? It's like the cutest thing on the planet. So, you know, we're like, we'll, we'll take him out of soccer and put it, first of all, I love the soccer coach. So and I'm in awe that. of summertime surf and the Asbury Park Surf Club. It's, 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 yeah, it's glorious and wonderful and fun to see kids on surfboards, but I can't imagine what it takes, like, keep all those kids safe on surfboards and paying attention, but summertime surf and Asbury park surf club just do a phenomenal job connecting to the kids, allowing them to have fun, but also be responsible and safe on the boards. I mean, it really is extraordinary. Sweet. All right, Joe, do you have anything else? I'm going to end this before seven. No, that's it. I I think I'm, I regret that I don't have tickets uh, because tank and the bangas are one of my favorite bands. And they're coming to Asbury Park, and I'm like, I was so shocked to see them on the uh, on the list. So if, if you guys don't know who they are, and you're going to the show, go see them. They're a lot of fun. Do you want to volunteer, uh, Joe? We need we I, we can find a volunteer spot for you. I uh, no, I can't um, this weekend, unfortunately. So I, I've made, since made other plans, but um, I might try to. Well, hmm, if there, I might try to like. <laughs> Email ride my bicycle down there when I get closer. Maybe I have to cancel everything. <laughs> we'll right. um, you know who I'm looking forward to? Ani DeFranco, who I don't know that a lot of people know who she is, but as a lesbian in the 90s, sure. she is. Also because my when favorite, I when yeah. I broke up with a when I broke up with girlfriends and really a girlfriend in the in the um <laughs> in the early 2000s all I did was listen to Ani DeFranco on repeat because that's what lesbians in their 20s do. Um so I am so looking forward to one seeing her. I've never seen her before and I am trying to get somebody to get me into a and I have nobody to get me to do this but uh, trying to get trying to meet her at least in um and and say hello because I'm a big fan and my wife's, a, I don't know that my wife is going to go, but she's a big fan of Patty Smith. So kudos to the Patty, Patty Smith too. Let me DeFranco and Patty Smith. Kudos to you guys. I saw Ani DeFranco play the graduate student lounge at Rutgers in 1991 or 92 in front of like 50 people in had no idea who she was. I was blown away. And, and, like, and was she big back then? She was already no. big by that. No, she's she like was 19 years big. old. She was like, no one, I had never heard of her. And I then went and anytime she came near, New Jersey. I went to go see her. Like I, you know, I was a big fan, uh, between 92, 92 and 94. I saw her, saw her a lot. She's really just great. Oh. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of Bonnie DeFranco. I don't think you can be a lesbian and not be a big fan of Bonnie DeFranco. We'll, um, <laughs> we'll remove your, uh, we'll request that you mail back your card. Um, any, listen guys, anything I know you have see here now, I know we finished up family day at the beach. Is there, um, any other events that you want to put on the map for people or how do people become members and, and, and volunteer, if not for see here now, but for your, your beach cleanup efforts and all of your other stuff. We have a beach cleanup the first Saturday of every month. And you can look at our schedule on our socials, on our website, on Facebook events for Jersey Shore. We're the Jersey Shore chapter 
of the Surfrider Foundation. So come clean up the beaches with us. Um, what else? And then we also our month. We also meet the second Wednesday of every month to talk about our different campaigns um, and projects that we're on. So that's another way to find out about what's going on with us. Yeah, and our events, including our meetings and our cleanups, are very lax. I think a lot of folks, like at every meeting that we have, somebody new always comes and they go, wow, this is way more informal than I thought it would be. Just because everybody assumes it's going to be like these these really serious surfers who are like, here's what's where you're going to do and here's how this is going to go. But in fact, it's just a couple of people who love the ocean having a couple of beers relaxing um, and just talking about the things that we love and, and how we can fix them. So to anybody who is intimidated to come to a surf rider meeting or event, Please but they're don't not, feel that way. But they're yeah, not so crazy. informal to be maddening, meaning that we do take action. As you can tell, by the way, that Mike and I are involved with Surf Fighter. It's a lot of passion and a lot of execution and a lot of success. Yeah, a lot Absolutely. of work. So Joe Werner, I have to give a shout out to Joe Werner as well, who um, was one of the founders of Asbury Park Family Day at the Beach and also a former chair of Surf Rider. And when he was the chair of Surf Rider, I feel like he was always on the go doing stuff for that organization. So you may be laid back, but you seem to be busy bees. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the best part is we're able to be laid back, but get it done at the same time. And so it's just, uh, yeah, really incredible what the volunteers really get done. Cool. All right. Thanks guys. Thanks for taking Thank the time. You. Thanks, yeah, thanks for, for taking the time. All the amazing Thank stuff. Thank you so much. Have fun yeah, right. soon. I will hopefully see one of you this weekend. You got it. Sounds good. If you'd like to get involved with the Surfrider Foundation, you can find our guests at jerseyshore.surfrider.org and on Instagram at surfriderjerseyshore.